Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? And it's welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. I'm really excited today to be able to announce the official launch and marketing of our online teen story slingers course. I've had a beautiful young teen story slinger design a new logo for us and it's a picture of a dragon. Um, really, really talented young artist. I'm really impressed and we're putting it on our T-shirts. We now have Story Slingers T-shirts as well. Another young, one of my young slingers came up with a, a logo for our T-shirt because they're all trying to get rid of my caravan and my boring stuff. And the slogan he's come up with is, Imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. And I love it so much, I think I'm going to make it the slogan for my podcast as well. So write it down. You heard it here first. And one of my younger... Teen Story Slingers came up with it, so it's all very exciting. The reason I'm mentioning it to you today is because my guest today is the wonderful Kate Forsyth. And as you know, she writes for children as well as adults, and she's got some wonderful uh, books there for children. And despite her having a very hectic schedule at the moment, she took some time out to to record with me a special interview for my teen story slingers. So thank you, Kate. I really appreciate your kindness. And for the rest of us, uh, she's recorded a wonderful, probably 45 minutes with me. Uh, and the tips that she shares are really exciting. But just before we get there, I want to mention I'm three and a half weeks out from my year of living creatively. I've got... Uh, three weeks of school to go I've got all my reporting all my marking and everything to go and then I'm free but of course if I'm then I'm broke as well so it should be very interesting to see how we move forward from there so if you've got anyone who wants to buy our teen online story slingers novel writing course please feel free to um, get them get it for them for Christmas um, and then my daughters and I will actually get to have a Christmas now it's not that bad I'm making that up but probably will be by the new year all right two more pieces of news I've just noticed on Facebook that Annie Seaton has been nominated for a stream of stuff. Osram Today finalist for 19, oh, 2016. Am I showing my age or what? She's been nominated for Author of the Year. There was something there about a book cover. There was something there about being um, the best established author. Um, so it's all really exciting for Annie. And if um, I don't know anyone who better deserves success than Annie does, and I'm really looking forward to her Daintree Sunrise coming out very, very shortly. And I'm getting it back on the podcast because I want to really pick her brain and talk about how she manages as an indie author and how she lives on that because that's what I want to do next year. And I thought if I need some expert advice, I'm, I'm hoping Annie can give me a few tips. Finally, before we start our interview, iTunes review. I'm being a very good businesswoman now and asking you to pop over to iTunes and review the podcast for us. Uh, I did that last week as well, but that didn't make any difference. It didn't happen. So I'm going to try again this way. Please, if you want to, go over to iTunes, give us a review, and then I can tick that off my list of things that I've asked for. Okay, sit back. Let's listen to Kate tell us how to become half as good as she is. And it's 
audience, welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. I have the beautiful Kate Forsyth with me today and I'm not even quite sure where to start, so welcome Kate. Thank you so much for having me, it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, and uh, Kate is is ever the lady and very, very patient as, as I harassed her for this interview, so I'm really looking forward to talking today all about the research uh, process that Kate goes through to write those magnificent novels um, that I've had the pleasure of reading one of this weekend and the one I was reading is called The Wild Girl uh, but Kate of course is knee deep into her newest novel uh, which sounds very exciting as well Beauty, of, Beauty in Thorns. Uh, Kate just to start at the high point and the most exciting point of our story would you like to tell us where you're up to with that book please? Oh yes well I have um, delivered my first draft um, last week, and I have this week heard back from my publisher, who has given me a few little, um, very small suggestions, um, which I'm kind of working on now, with the idea that we're going to go to the copy edit, you know, within the week, which just simply means that I don't have to do very much more work. We're just going to have a little bit of a tweak, and then we start our looking at it line by line and getting it it ready for publication. So that's wonderful. Oh, and I think we've got a bit of noise in the background there. I think it sounds like a television or something. I don't know where that's coming from. That was my husband and my son who I told they had to be quiet. (laughs) I can hear them laughing and talking in the background. (laughs) Yeah, and everybody, we're perfectly happy with that because we're that slice of life type um, podcast where anything goes. And Kate, look, I'm so excited to have you. You're such a wonderful writer and we're here to talk about the writing process. And you've already talked a little bit about uh, the editing process. I'm assuming some of us would not get back a such a clean manuscript from that first major uh I guess look over by an editor has that always been the case with you it's certainly what I aim for and what I hope for um my uh my aim is always to try and deliver the manuscript in as good a shape as I can get it um deadlines are put in place to stop us from obsessing over our writing and I I definitely need that because I am quite an obsessive writer um but you know I always just try and have it in the very best possible shape before I give it to my publishers simply because I know that they have limited time and resources as well and I want them to uh help me take it to you know the next level I certainly don't want them fixing spelling mistakes or grammatical mistakes that I would find that um humiliating I suppose um I pride myself on on delivering as clean a manuscript as I can yeah and I think that sums it up everybody if you want to know why Kate is as successful as she is it's because she's a a pure professional I'm going to introduce you properly now Kate uh occupation writer poet and journalist uh and I knew you as a children's author and then one day I walked into a shop and I discovered this beautiful wild girl and I just shoved my daughters out of the way and said right this one's for me um so I was very privileged and obviously you've written uh lots of books for adults and books for children uh, yes. but it's that knowledge base of yours Kate um, and that love of myth mythology and fairy tales uh, would you like to talk us through how that all began and and where you're at with it now okay um, so uh, firstly I, I, I guess I should say that I have always uh, written for both adults and for children and I know this is unusual and I get asked about it a lot because um, 
I, I guess people think it's strange that I can write an extremely long and deep and dark and complex novel for adults and then write something much shorter and sweeter for children. But um, I've always loved both reading a children's and adult um, literature and I've always wanted to write for both. And so the story comes to me, the story tells me what it wants to be. I just listen and obey and do what the story tells me to do. I always know exactly who I'm writing for. Um, the story demands its own shape. It demands its form. And, you know, once I listen to that, then I know what I'm doing. Um, as far as uh, as fairy tales and, and myths go, um, as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the fairy tale and by myths. My mother was an anthropologist. And so um, she was deeply interested in myth and symbolism and psychology, and I was brought up with a great deal of um, interest in that just around the dining room table at night. My father was a scientist, and so we had some quite lively dinnertime con conversations. Uh, when I, uh, I was first writing when I was a child, and so all of my early stories that I wrote when I was seven – eight, nine, ten, eleven, were stories of magic and adventure. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess as I, you know, left school and went to university, I was drawn to studying those type of topics. I first studied um, fairy tales in my undergraduate degree and um, I was already using the, the symbols and the structures and the archetypal figures of myth and fairy tale in my own writing. I mean, by the time I was at uni, when I was 19 or 20, I'd already written almost a dozen books. So, you know, it was clear to me that these were part of what was driving me to write. Um, and as time has gone on, um, this type of stories I was wanting to tell, I think were greatly enriched by that interest in history and in fairy tale and in myth. Um, all of my stories have drawn upon them to one extent or another, but certainly my last three or four books um, have I've, I've been um, engaging with fairy tales on a much deeper level, you know, with intent, I guess you could say. Yeah, and it's that deeper level. Uh, you talk about deep, dark and complex and you talk about... Um, I guess, um, looking at the depths of these fairy tales to bring out truths. I'm very interested in, in your research process, Kate, and I'm very interested that you tend to take reality, you tend to take uh, the real-life people who wrote these things, and then you you retell the stories in a modern, I guess, in a modern context, um, um, bringing our own knowledges to bear. Uh, I'm going to skip straight to Beauty of Thorns, even though I've got lots more beauty in thorns as much as I've got lots of other things I want mm -hmm. to ask you about. Uh, you're talking about uh, reimagining sleeping beauty, and I'm immediately hooked on the passion scandals of pre-Raphaelite. <laughs> Pronounce that for me. Passion scandals and tragedies of the pre-Raphaelite circle of artists and poets. It does sound quite good, doesn't it? That's, I don't want to read yeah. it. Yeah, I, I, I am so excited. And that Raphaelite, I thought it would come out easily, but it's still not coming. I'm going to practice that all night in the shower. Uh, please, please tell us about this list of fascinating women on your website because this is where I get really hooked. These are real characters, aren't they? 
Yes. So um, I'm very interested in telling the um, stories that are inspired by uh, the lives of forgotten or little-known women, um, you know, women whose lives were extraordinary. They were full of passion and desire and longing. They were full of ambition. These were women who were fighting against the patriarchal constrictions of the, of the societies in which they lived. These are women who were trying to live self-determined lives. Um, and these were women whose um, own lives I think, are well worth telling. Um, in Beauty and Thorns, I'm particularly drawn to um, the muses, I suppose you, uh, you could call them, the muses of the pre-Raphaelite circle of artists. Many of them wanted to be artists themselves. Many of them had dreams of painting and writing and and creating. Um, the pre-Raphaelites, of course, was an artistic movement that existed from the middle of the 19th century up right up to the end of the 19th century. So this is a Victorian society. This is a, a society where women were thought to be, um, you know, weak, willed and um, helpless, you know, the angel in the house. This was a time when women were not permitted to vote. Women were not per permitted to own property. Women were not permitted to own their own income. And if they did earn their own income, it belonged to their husbands. Um, they had no uh, individual identity as uh, a person outside their fathers or husbands. And so this is something that interests me, you know, ways that they fought to live their own lives, the way the men that tried to help them, the men that hindered them. It's a fascinating period of history and one that um, I've always been interested in. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just listening with awe here. Uh, Pre-Raphaelite, I know I can say it now because I've heard you say it a few times. Uh, I'm very interested in the painting, writing, and creativity of of our forebears as well. And I I, I play in my very amateurish way around um, the uh, timberlands up in far north Queensland, uh, and. I'm just such a passionate, I guess, feminist and bringing out the myths and legends of our own Australian um, mining industry I look at. And the way you describe it and the things that you talk about uh, just uh, make me very excited, Kate. Researching, finding out the information. Would you like mm -hmm. to talk to us about that just wonderful, wonderful process of digging through um, yes. old books and finding ideas? Well, see, I really love the research because uh, research is simply reading with a purpose. And I love to read. Um, I'm obviously a voracious reader. And um, because I come, you know, I do have a, a certain type of academic background um, in that I've, you know, I've done three degrees. I've uh, worked as a journalist um, for many, many years. My research skills have helped my writing. Um Basically, when I set out to work on a new novel, I want to know everything that there is to know. I have huge ambitions. And so um, I start trying to read as much as I can. What I need to do is I need to read everything that I can get my hands on. And then I need to internalize it. I need to know it um, so that I don't have to, I know, um, consult the research books anymore. I can slip inside the skin of my characters. I understand what forces have shaped their psyches, 
what forces drive them, what they want, what they fear. Um, this can take quite a long time, um, of course, but the more that I read, the more informed that I am. Um, I try and read a lot of primary sources, which can be difficult to find sometimes. Um, I'm not afraid to ask for help if I need it, and I always get an amazing amount of help from historians and local history groups and from archivists and librarians. Um, I hunt down books. I particularly like um, letters, diaries and first-hand accounts, uh, particularly of the, of, of the characters whose point of view I'm trying to bring to life on the page. I need to hear their voices um, so that I can speak in their voices. Uh, you know, my job is to lose myself and my own voice and find their voices, and that can take a very long time. Um, often my research process takes nearly as long as a writing process, um, and I never start writing too early. I think it's a danger. Um, you know, people get impatient and want to start kind of galloping into the story, but, you know, research, one, it throws up ideas for your actual plot. Two, it allows you to understand your characters and empathise with them, to you know, to know what drives them. And three, it gives you their voice. And so people say, how much research is too much research? And I say, well, there's no such thing as too much research. Now, for me, the research never stops me from writing. I'm always eager to begin writing, and but for some people, they use the research as a form of, of procrastination. And if if that's the case with you, you need to ask yourself: Am I using the research in order to stop myself from writing? What am I afraid of? What's holding me back? Generally, for me, this isn't a problem because I'm always keen to start writing. But I know that for many people, too much research is a sign that perhaps you're afraid of the hugeness of the task that lies ahead of you. Yeah, and everything that you do when it comes to research and then forming a fictional world is a, is a huge task, Kate, and you cover cover things in such detail. Uh, you uh, take yourself off on research trips as well. Uh, I do. Would you like to share us with some of uh, share with us your trips to? I guess England is where you go. Well, it depends on what novel I'm writing. Um, so uh, let's just focus on some of my most recent novels because I've got an awful lot of novels and, you don't want me to bore on about them forever. Um, but Bitter Greens, which is perhaps my most um, popular novel, my top-selling novel, um, it is set in Renaissance Venice and then it is set um, in France at the time of the Sun King, Louis Fourteenth who um, lived in Paris and who built Versailles. Um, so for me, when I was running Bitter Greens, I, I had to go to Paris and I had to go to Venice. Oh, and I had to go to the south of France and I had to go to the Italian Alps. Oh, how I suffer for my art. <laughs> so I packed up my three children and we went to Europe and we went to all the places that appear in the book. Um, now, most people think that I would do my research trips before I start writing, but I don't. I actually um, do the research trip as close to the end as I can get. 
And this sounds counterintuitive, it, it, but, um, you know, I have an extremely um, overwhelmingly busy life and I, I have a family and three children. And so I can't just go and wander around. I have to go with intent. I need to go with purpose. And the other thing is, is, is that when I've actually written the first draft, I've been living inside the skin of my characters for months and months and months. And so... I'm no longer myself. I'm I'm in their skin. I you know when I go to a place, I imagine what my character would think and feel, what they would see, what they would smell, how it would make them feel. I'm always looking for the emotional resonance of a scene. It is of course important to go somewhere and you know listen to the sounds and smell the smells and everything else, but I want to do that not as myself, but as my character. And so my research trips uh, are usually as close to the end of, of the book as I can get. And by that time I know um, what scenes are to be kept in the book and what scenes have been thrown out, all that sort of stuff. Um, so with The Wild Girl, um, the, the Wild Girl is set in the Holy Roman Empire of German nations. Germany did not yet exist. And most of the action takes place in a very small German electorate, like a little kingdom. Um, it was ruled by an elector, uh, which was actually one of the highest sort of titles you can have in those times. And it was set during the Napoleonic Wars. And so I, I had to go to um, Castle. So this little principality was called Hessen Castle. Now, Castle does not exist as it did in the days of the Brothers Grimm. It was bombed to pieces in the Second World War. So I went to other German villages that were had had retained their medieval flavour and were like Castle might have been. But I also went to Castle to meet with, you know, I went to the Grimm Museum there and I, I met the director of the museum. He showed me many of his treasures, including a first edition of the Grimm Brothers and I went to the palace and, you know, I I walked in the skin of Dorchenfield and it helped bring the scene to life for me. Yeah. And if we're not jealous by now, everybody, of this wonderful, wonderful experience, uh, three children, how do they find your research trips? Because I know that when you're living in your head like that and you're so absorbed in what you're seeing and what you're doing, your children must have come to understand, I guess, travelling with you can um, sometimes lead you to some very interesting places. Yes, my children have um, had travelled with me on every single research trip since they were uh, quite small. And, so, you know, so they knew exactly what to expect. Luckily for them, a lot of the places I want to go to are actually interesting to them as well, castles, palaces, you know, forest, secret passages, things like that. Um, but, I, you know, we had a, a, a kind of a deal. So normally the morning of each day is spent in research for me and the afternoon is spent in doing something that they want to do. And in the case of Bitter Greens, um, my youngest was turning seven while we were in Paris. And so for her seventh birthday, we went to Disneyland. And so all week I, I was able to say to them, well, you know, we all want to go to Disneyland, I know, but mum's got to get her research done first. So 
You're good kitties. Let mum get her research done and we'll be going to Disneyland at the end of the week. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I've written down now. Be aware, everybody, that I have about 20 pages of notes scattered around me because the more I went into Kate's very, very fascinating uh, writing life, the more carried away I got and I thought I can write a thesis paper on Kate. Um, oh, but one of you <laughs> Hey, I'm your girl. I'm your girl. Um, now... What, I, what I'm finding here and the question that, oh, sorry, the note that I've just made is managing to live the romance of a writer and we're talking the true romance of a writer. You've got all this beautiful research, you've got all these wonderful characters, you've got all this beautiful history, yet you've got to balance it with that very modern life of being the mother of three young modern children who are living in the 21st century. Um when we started, you said you, you live a very, very full life. How do you make that transition from being totally in your head and totally absorbed? Do you have a do not enter sign on your door? No, I have an open door policy and so my children can come in at any time. Um, you know, they know that I just need to finish my sentence, um, but then, you know, they can come and talk to me at any time and, and they do. Um, and I've always built my writing routine around my children. So when they were babies, I wrote while they slept. And sometimes I would walk really, really fast, pushing the pram in the park till they fell asleep, and then I would sit in the park and write. Um, as they grew older, I wrote while they were at school. Um, you know, my eldest son is now at university, and my two youngest children are now at high school. And so um, – and they've uh, – are grown up with me being a writer. They've never known anything else. You know, they're very um, aware of the rhythms of what I do um, and they know that I always put them first um, but there are times when I just need to knuckle down and get um, done what's done. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have a very loving and understanding partner and so um, uh, um, both of us work from home. And so when I'm very, very busy trying to finish a novel or when I'm um, in the editing process, my husband will pick up a slack and he'll do most of the cooking and, and ferrying the kids around. I know when his busy times of the year are, so I try and make sure that they, that you know, when he's busy at times when I can be a little bit quieter. Um, I, only, my, only my first novel was written without children. And so it's always been a part, it's always been a challenge and it's always been a delight. Um, I guess for me uh, sometimes what is difficult if there is an unexpected crisis, a child um, falls at school and breaks her arm or uh, a child is sick or um, there are unexpected challenges like that, but because both my husband and I work from home, um, there's always one of us here. The biggest difficulty for me is the travel, so touring. Touring puts a very hard load on me and on the family and the children miss me terribly when I'm away and my husband misses me terribly when I'm away because he's essentially a, a single father doing everything. Um, and that... I must admit, can be very, very hard. I try and do the minimum that I can do, but it is very much a part of being a modern-day author. We are expected to go to festivals and 
tour and speak at libraries and bookshops and and do media and everything else that is part of part of the job now yeah i've got this image kate of uh you're obviously a very very strong woman and you've got to go out and do these things and the poor husband is at home looking after all the children and it puts a little bit of a smile on my face not because your husband is so beautiful and does all those wonderful things but you write about women in a patriarchal patriarchal society back back in the what 18th 19th century where women didn't even have a voice and now it is completely turned around and I, I just I love that image and I admire your husband for doing it but you're supporting women from I guess the pages of our history who did not have those options if their husbands disappeared and your books are about infidelity and all those wonderful things uh, and here you are leading yes. the push in the modern world I love it that's exactly right you know I mean um, you know we often joke uh, you know what a modern family we are so you know my you know both of us work full-time but both of us have have built our work so we can work from home as much as possible we share a calendar we you know where whoever basically gets their thing in the calendar first the other one has to either deal with or needs to find help if they have to have something else to do um we're very intuitive we're very um aware of when the other one is exhausted or overworked or you know when you know we need to step up and take up the slack so the other one can get what needs to be done because we've been together for so long we're very aware of the challenges and difficulties of each other's lives um and we make it work sometimes i think that i'm like a high wire artiste dancing and juggling balls and all I have to do is maybe have one too many balls and the whole lot will come crashing down. But if it does, we just pick them up and we just keep on going. Um, one of the problems for – well, one, it isn't really a problem, but it, it's something that we've had to learn is that it's, in, it's difficult for me to uh, move fluidly from the world of the book to real life and back. And you asked this question before and I didn't really answer it. So we have all sorts of um, little safety nets and and methods to try and make sure that, um, you know, I don't leave a child in the dark on the edge of an oval because I've forgotten to pick them up because I don't know what time it is because I'm deep in my writing. That has happened. Um, And I've burnt dinners and I have failed to do the grocery shopping, so we have no food in the house. I have, I have made so many mistakes, but um, you know, somehow we muddle through pretty well most, of, you know, most of the time. And because my kids have grown up with me being a writer, and because my, I've always done it, you know, my husband knows it, it so well. Um, they know the emotional and psychological journey I travel through with each book, and and they're very loving and supportive of that so i'm pretty blessed i guess that um that we that we managed to make it work yeah and i think um, one of the mistakes that happens now is this romanticizing of of the writing process and we often joke on on this podcast about you know the book in 30 days syndrome and the guys doing all their work and by nine o'clock being on the golf course uh what you're what you're giving us is a very real picture of what it's like to be a modern writer 
in in the midst of families and partners and everything else that goes on in our very very busy lives it's not easy but it's doable uh, provided you surround yourself by understanding people and provided you look after yourself yes i think you're absolutely right there um it's never easy but um nothing really worthwhile is ever easy and um you know i it actually makes like i hear people say sometimes oh um you know you know women can't do it all and i i disagree but i think that you know that we have to be very steadfast in understanding what it is that we are prepared to do i think that we need to be very careful um in making sure that that the people around us understand that i i feel like it's really important for my children to know that a woman is allowed to work a woman is allowed to uh have an uh, a creative outlet a woman and a man are allowed to work together to make their lives um of value um that it's a constant uh process of adjustment negotiation compromise and yet these things are not uh bad this is actually a delight you know mm-hmm. uh not only am i living um the life that a woman should be allowed to live but so is my husband yeah and i i think i think what impresses me uh, so very very much here today and i sound like a awestruck teenager uh I wrote The Miner's Wife and it was a literary novel and it took me three years and I did the white gloves in the Victoria or State Library of Victoria, you know, pouring through police occurrence records or something like that and I wrote and I wrote and I worked and it used to always take me a whole day to write half a day. Now, you don't have that luxury. When you um, sink deep into your um, novels, mm. which are so well-researched and so obviously uh, literary and and deep and as you said um earlier on very very thoughtful novels you don't have the luxury of easing yourself into it and playing it writer you just have to switch and and just drop into your work i should imagine and then come out i again. do hmm? um it's a, a a kind of ongoing joke I, I mean for a writer like you know i make my living from my writing i don't have another job this is this is how i support my family this is how i pay their school fees and their very large grocery bills because I've got teenage boys who are always starving. This is, you know, you know, I, 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 I have to make my living from my work, and so you can't kind of loll around and go, I don't feel like writing today. You know, I'm not inspired today. I, I write when I'm sick. I write when I'm tired. I write when I don't feel like writing because I know that if I throw myself at it, the more I write, the more I feel like writing. And the novel um, is a long, is long form fiction. It's not a sprint; it's a marathon. And so you need to approach it like you need to train for it. I mean, I am very good now at a strong, steady. Uh, output and and word count. Um, I wasn't when I I began. I had to build up to it. I had to build up my stamina and my writing strength. Um, but I pretty much know now how much I can I can reasonably write in a week. I know how much how long my novels should be, and so I I plan what I need to do to try and make sure I make my deadlines. It's um. 
it's easier than you think because I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of preciousness sometimes about you know only writing when one's inspired. You know, if I only wrote when I was inspired, I, I would have written a few poems in my life. <laughs> now, don't forget um, one of Kate's sidelines is is poetry and obviously very, very good at it because they're published under her maiden name in newspapers. I picked that little bit, tip it up in some of the thousands of words I've read about you. Um, but what I want to focus on is you've said uh, writing is easier than you think and you take away all the rubbish that comes with the idea of being a writer, which you've done so very, very well today. You've stripped it all away, Kate, and I appreciate it. Get down, do it, uh, and we're spoiled in a way that we've never been spoiled before because you don't have to go off to the State Library and put on your gloves anymore. How has the research process changed for you over the years as as more and more has come online? Yes, it's a very, very good question because when I was writing my first novels, you know, there was no internet, there was no Google books, there was no, uh, I mean, I was very poor and so I couldn't really just order any old book that I wanted and there was nowhere to order them from. Nowadays I just go online and I go to a, a website like um, Abe, um, ABE Books, and I can order any any book that I want really. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult but, it, you know, nowadays, for example, when I was writing um, my historical children's series, um, there was a scene set on the church tower um, of the of the church in Rye, and some lovely person had gone on top of the church tower in Rye and done a 360 panorama video, so I could see exactly what you could see from the top of the of the church tower in Rye. Um, I am able to easily connect with the experts in the field. I'm able to um, access, for example, um, all of the uh, court records of the old Bailey in England uh, online. And so I, I can go online and I can read court transcripts, you know, from the 19th century if I so choose. Um, and lots and lots of books. The best thing about it, I think, is Google Books because they give you a preview so I can have a good look at the book and then decide whether or not I want to buy it and have it and pay postage and have it sent to me. So all of these things are incredibly useful to me. Um, in the olden days, I used to have to go to the State Library and look through microfiches. Now I don't have to do that anymore. So it, it, it makes it much swifter and easier. And the other thing that is wonderful is that um, nowadays many books that have been out of print for a very long time are being reprinted in a print-on-demand, and so I'm able to get copies of books that perhaps would be really difficult to have got 20 years ago. Yeah, so if you're not excited, everybody, uh, please be excited now um, because uh, that's what I find Everything is there and it's there at your desk where you can delve and you can find the most amazing uh, research and I guess you only need to use a very little bit of it to bring your stories to life, Kate. Um, you can you can find diaries and journals and letters, all those things that that make for such interesting writing. Uh, forget 
who's reading it, you yourself can actually really sink into it. And I noticed with this beauty in thorns, and that's why, you know, I hardly even got past this for the first couple of days. You've you've listed these characters, Lizzie Siddell, is it? Uh, Jane Morris. Lizzie Siddell. Yeah, uh, Georgia MacDonald or Georgie MacDonald. Georgiana. Georgiana, yes. Yeah. <laughs> How did you... Um, I know you started with, I think it was something like 14 characters and you've whittled it down to five and you actually had to toss one out of 20,000 words of that character to bring yes. your novel from 180,000 words to 160. Uh, yes. How did you do it? Um, well, see, I'm um, quite a passionate advocate of the importance of planning um, and this might be because my books are very complex um, and also I'm, I'm really aware of the demands of the professional market. So I know, for example, that um, if a book is too large, it puts off a lot of readers. It puts me off. I've I've been told to read books and I look at the size of them and I go, oh, they're too heavy. I can't carry them in my handbag. I've got to hold that book at night when I'm reading. So I don't want the book to be too large because I know it's very hard to sustain pace and suspense over a book that's too big. So I, I always have a ideal length of the book. And so while I'm writing, if I can see that the story is getting too big, I can stop, take stock, think about what I'm doing, rethink it, and keep on moving. I, I don't get overwhelmed. Well, I don't always get overwhelmed by the enormity of what I'm doing. And I find that is really, really useful for me. Um, I can stop, rethink my plan, have a little look at how long the book is, readjust my ideas, and then keep working onwards. Um, this is one reason why I tend to be able to produce a book on such a regular basis and it's one reason why I don't ever get into a big muddle in the middle or at least I hope I don't <laughs> but um yeah so pretty much um the whole way through I keep asking myself what is my true story what story am I telling is this fascinating subplot truly adding to the book or is it distracting from the main pattern of action? What can I do to intensify my story, to focus my story better? What can I do to keep my pace as swift as I can possibly get it? And so if it means I have to cut a whole character out or I have to cut chapters I've already written, I just do it. You, you do what needs to be done. You know, my feeling is always, all right, I had to write that scene in order to know I was going wrong. And so even though it does hurt to cut a character or cut a subplot, it's also liberating because I know that I'm focusing on my core story. I know that I'm making the book better. And so I just do what needs to be done and then keep on going. Yeah. And look, Kate, you're, you're, you're a true gift to writers. Um, I'm sitting here thinking that you're actually a writer's writer because every word that you utter gives us something to think about about our own writing and th and that's a real gift that that you have. Uh, now I notice Beauty of Thorns will be out next September that you're working on the edits at the moment. Um, yes. Everybody, uh, if you haven't um, read um, Kate's blog and all these wonderful stories that she puts out and shares her information so willingly about the writing 
process. Uh, this one is about, uh, I guess, writers and artists and poets and all the scandals that went on. To me, it's a romance in the true sense of the word. Yes, it's romance with a capital R, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm hooked and I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, would you, I'm going to end it now because I'm aware of our time restraints, but I think, Again, we started on a high note with this very, very exciting uh, book that's coming out, Beauty and Thorns. Uh, the one thing that I want to know now is you're off on a research trip to the Cotswolds. Well, see, the trip to the Cotswolds is not a research trip. It's um, I um, every year I I go with a group uh, with a group of um, aspiring authors and I teach them. It's a literary retreat. I do it every single year. Uh, we have a week in in Oxford and the Cotswolds. We write, we talk, we share, we dream. Um, you know, we visit amazing literary um, places. And then I nearly always use, um, I have a week in the Cotswolds, and then I, I normally go and do a few things for my UK publishers or go and do research, you know, whatever else I need to do. Um, but the, the retreat is open to anyone who wants to come. Uh, we have a limit of 10 people. And so, you know, whoever books first gets in. And it's just a, it, it is the most magical week. You know, I can't, I can't tell you, Melinda. It's so beautiful. And we spend our mornings in class, but there are no writing exercises. No one has to read out what they have written. We just share and um, support each other, and we talk a lot about, um, you know you know, connecting to our creativity and finding our story. And my aim is to teach them how to do what they do better. And then every second afternoon we go on a, a literary tour. So we go to Stonehenge and Stratford-upon-Avon, have a walking tour of Oxford. And then on our last night um, we have a literary dinner at an old manor house and we have it every year with a mystery guest um, always a writer, um, you know, someone that they're not expecting and hopefully someone that they're so excited to meet. And we have this amazing meal in the company of this author and talk to her or him and get their insights. Um, it's just the most wonderful week. So that's what I do every year. Yeah, and I think Kate's given us a little mini retreat today, a taste of what this very generous woman has to offer the rest of us. Kate, I I'm, I just can't imagine uh, being on that retreat with you for a week and just being able to nurture that creativity in a space that is surrounded, I guess, by the beauty and the romance of what it is to be a writer. You certainly live, I guess, the true writer's life, um, and you've balanced it so very, very beautifully. Uh, what's next? And I'm going to end. I really am going to end now. Uh, do you have? I know you have to have your first line of your next book before you start to write. Do you have a spark of an idea for that one, or are you still knee deep in this one? I am still knee deep in this one, but I have. I've actually um, in the week between me delivering my novel and my publisher getting back. One of the many tasks I've done is actually write up all my ideas for new novels and then put them into the order that they most excite me. And then I will go and have a lovely lunch with my agent. We'll drink champagne. We'll throw around ideas and I'll show her. All, uh, I actually have about a dozen ideas um, and we'll talk about which one she thinks is best. 
Um, and that's what I'll do next. So, no, I don't have my first line or my last line, which, as you know, I like to have before I start writing, but I have lots and lots of ideas. Ah, are we excited? Or what? Kate, you're beautiful. Uh, I'm going to say thank you very, very much now for, thank for sharing you, with us. Uh, and we look forward to seeing Beauty in Thorns Out. And I have everybody, I'll put those transcript notes up, and if you don't print them out and you don't use them as your little Bible, um, I want to know why, and I'm going to save every penny I earn from everything I do to go on one of those writers' retreats. Um, come, Melinda, come. I, You'd love it. I, yes. I, I'm, in, I'm, in I'm in love from the minute I start reading about your research. I'm, I'm a feminist from the old school. I love the idea that you're bringing strong women out. I just go, yes, and I showed my daughter and I said, look at this. Uh, so I'm amazed. Thank you, Kate. Um, thank you, Melinda. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us. That's another episode of Writer on the Road, uh, and we'll talk to you again next time. Uh, bye for now. Bye.